Over the last few months, we've been using the Common Lectionary as our source of study in church on a Sunday morning. Today should be the first in a three-week series looking at the Beatitudes. But next week, we're starting, I think it's a six-week look at the Psalms. So I've been given permission to have this as a kind of standalone. One of my colleagues, when she retired, she and her husband moved to the south of France, to a town with the wonderful name of Condom. Yeah, with a name like that, you can believe it's a small family town. The house that they moved into is the biggest domestic dwelling that I have ever stayed in. It's absolutely huge. It dates back to the 15th century. It's built into the, the ramparts of the town. But when you go through the courtyard, in through the front door, you could almost imagine that you're in a ship because every floor is uneven. There's slabs going up and down and you're walking along and you're swaying this way and that. There isn't a wall that's upright. They're all lying at angles this way and that. How can you tell that? Because if you put a plumb line up against it, the wall wouldn't meet the plumb line. It wouldn't meet that standard. And in the book of Amos, chapter 7, Amos is given a vision of God. And God is standing there beside a true, upright, vertical wall. And he's holding a plumb line. And Amos asks, what's all this about? And God says, that's my standard. That plumb line is the law. And when you look at the children of Israel, they're nowhere near the line. They don't meet the standard. This day, a teacher of the law, a teacher, obviously a very intelligent person, <laughs> a teacher of the law who's an upright man, a pillar of society, comes to Jesus with a question. Nothing wrong with asking questions. That's how we learn. How, where, why, what, when. Nothing wrong with that. These teachers of the law spent their days doing that sort of thing. Asking one another questions. Debating with one another. That was their lifestyle. And he comes with a reasonable question to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing wrong with that. No, the, the question was fine. The problem is the motivation behind the question. This guy wasn't particularly interested in finding out the answer to his question. All he was wanting to do was to show how smart he was. He was wanting to catch Jesus out. He was wanting to trip him up by asking his question. But Jesus turns the tables on him. When I was a teacher, I know I annoyed hundreds of kids throughout the years. They would ask me questions, and I wouldn't tell them the answer. I didn't regard that as my job, to give them the answer. My job was to give them the tools so that they could find the answer for themselves. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't answer this man's question. He gives him the tools. He sends him back to the law. What does the law say? Well, there's a big problem with the law. 
Because the law doesn't, it can't possibly save us. The law is that plumb line and it shows us that we're off the vertical. The law points out our need to be saved. Because compared to the law, not one of us, not one of us is upright. We don't measure up. Romans 3 and 23, for all, all have sinned and don't match up to that plumb line. They don't match up. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And this wise, upright teacher of the law comes back with an answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor. He knew the answer. Well done. Top of the class. The problem was that the answer was up there and it wasn't there. He knew the law in his head, but not in his heart. Because he refused to admit that he didn't have love for either his God or his neighbor. All he wanted to do was to justify himself, show how smart he was. So he comes back to Jesus with another question. Here's a teacher of the law. He's looking for a bit of legalese here. Define neighbor. Okay. You could almost imagine a first century uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby, remember? Yes, minister. Yes, prime minister. A neighbor. Here and referred to as the party of the first part is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than one statute mile from one's own legal residence unless there is another person of Jewish descent here and to be referred to as the party of the second part living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself. In which case the party of the second part is to be construed as neighbour of the party of the first part and one is oneself relieved of all responsibility of any sort or kind whatsoever. Sorry, Anna. Aye, right. So, Jesus told a story. We've got these headings in our Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't call it a parable. It might have been. But perhaps Jesus was reminding his audience of an incident that had actually happened. If Jesus had made up this story so that the Samaritan looked good and the Jew looked bad, that would have been counterproductive. His audience would have turned against him. It had been self-defeating. It had been dangerous for him. Hey, that's impossible. You've made that up. No chance. There's as much chance of a Samaritan helping a Jew as Aberdeen winning the Scottish Cup. <laughs> Gordon, sorry. <laughs> but there were no hills of protest. It might have happened. Whether it did or didn't, I suppose, is immaterial. But what is true is that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous road. It was notorious. It was used by the temple workers to go to and from their home, to and from work. A busy road, but as I said, notorious, because it was festooned with bandits. The authorities knew all of this, of course. But they were too busy looking after the law to look after people and do anything about it. And a man is attacked, and a priest and a Levi come by. 
and we can condemn their actions. But don't condemn, condemn too quickly. What are our actions? A week last Tuesday, uh, if you remember, it was a particularly cold, icy morning. I was getting ready to go out. I was literally tying my shoelaces at 9.30. I was going to an important meeting in Uddingston. I was meeting up with some friends and we were discussing plans that we had for the future and we were going to be praying about it and ask God's blessing and guidance on what we were doing. When I got a call from Claremont, Cafe Clare is on, but the heating isn't. No surprise there. Can I do something about it? So, yeah, give me a few minutes and I'll be along. So I contacted the guys, sent them a text. I'm going to be a wee bit late. I've got something important to do in the church. Just start without me. So, finished time and laces, out the door, carried out the garage, started driving down the street. And there was one of my elderly neighbours trying to open his garage door. But it was an icy morning and obviously the lock had frozen and he was struggling to open that door. And I literally drove by on the other side and went to the church and went to my meeting. And that silly wee incident has niggled and bothered me for the last week and a half. The priest and the Levite could come up with all sorts of excuses. Oh, the priest had had a busy day. The temple was mobbed. There was things to do. There were people to see. There were meetings. Parishioners, you know what a pain they can be. The air conditioning in the temple had stopped working again. And he's going along the road and he sees this guy. Well, actually, is this someone who's been attacked? Maybe this is a decoy. Maybe the bandits are lying in wait, ready to pounce on him. I'll just give it the body swerve. There are plenty of other people come down this way. Surely one of them will attend to this injured man. So the priest left it to the Levite. And the Levite left it to someone else. And doesn't that sound familiar? Leave it to someone else. At the board meeting we had during the week, at one point I asked the question. My question was this, whose responsibility is it? By the time we reached home, I had the answer. It was my responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's the responsibility of each one of us. At the moment in the life of the church, we're having some challenging issues. Dare I mention it, we've got that presbytery plan being of our lives. We don't have a minister. There are jobs to be done. There are vacancies to be filled. Who's going to do it? It's our responsibility. It's the responsibility of each one of us. We can make all sorts of excuses, but the fact is that it's our job. My mum was a, a very gifted person. Anyone who knew her would, would tell you that. She was the only one that didn't realize it. We were in her house one Sunday afternoon, and by this time, mum must have been at least 90. <coughs> Excuse me. And she said that she'd been asked to join the congregational board. I said, great, are you doing it? No, why not? I'm too old, I've had my day. And there was no way that we could persuade her to change her mind. She wasn't too old. We can't use that as an excuse. None of us are too old. 
None of us are too young. God can use any and all of us. He took a young lad, David, a shepherd boy, and used him to slay a giant. He took an old man, Abram, and sent him on a gigantic journey to be the father of a whole nation. God can use any one of us. Earlier on, we sang that wonderful hymn, Holy, 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 inspired by the words of Isaiah 6. And if you remember the story of Isaiah and his vision, Isaiah reckons himself as being useless, worthless, hopeless. And yet when God asks a question, you know, who's going to do this? He sticks his hand up. Here I am, send me. The God who calls us to a task, we can be sure, will equip us. John, uh, John Collard, a few weeks ago, was speaking about grace. Um, you know, sometimes some people get under my skin. They really annoy me. They upset me. doesn't happen very often, no more than half a dozen times a day. But <laughs> Catherine will from time to time say to me, it's an opportunity for grace. If there's a job to be done, if there's a post to be filled, it's an opportunity for service. And enter stage left, the hero of the piece, the Samaritan. A Samaritan? A Samaritan? He's got that wrong. His listeners must have been completely disarmed. This was a a juxtaposition. It should be a Jew helping a Samaritan, but a Samaritan helping a Jew, a Jew who'd been ignored by his fellows. And this Samaritan showed love for someone who was his natural enemy, someone who would have hated him. This Samaritan was willing to risk his life. He was willing to give up his money. Who was this guy? His name, well, sorry, I don't know his name. He's completely anonymous. He just disappears into the sunset, never seen, never heard of again. Just an ordinary guy. Not for him a mention in the New Year's Honours list. Not for him a beatification or canonization. But this guy showed mercy. He showed mercy. He identified a need and he had compassion for the victim. He had no reason, no reason on earth for doing what he did. No reason for showing mercy to the injured man. But mercy doesn't need a reason. And the lawyer knew that. This upright teacher of the law knew that God requires his people to show mercy. And Jesus asked the question, so, which one is a neighbor? The word's sticking his throat. He can't even enunciate the word Samaritan. He has to say, the guy that helped. And now this upright teacher of the law is He's uptight. He's mad. He's been hoist by his own petard. He wanted to show how smart, how intelligent he was. But instead, Jesus has exposed him as being foolish, as being 
hypocritical. He wanted to discuss neighbor in a very kind of general sense. It's easy to talk in general senses, isn't it? It's much more difficult to help in a concrete way. I remember years and years ago seeing a poster in church that said, when all's said and done, there's a lot more said than done. For this lawyer, the theory was much more important than the practice. The lawyer wanted to make it complex, but Jesus makes it practical and simple. And how often do we try to make things complex? We make the gospel complex. We want people to jump through hoops or climb over barriers. But the gospel is very simple. Admit, believe, receive. Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. There was a high cost, a high cost for caring. It cost the Samaritan two days' wages, but it was more costly not to care. The priest and the Levite were the ones who lost out. They lost the opportunity to be better men, better stewards of God's resources. They had the chance to have a good influence in a bad situation, and they blew it. And yet, that Samaritan's one act, his one deed of mercy, has inspired sacrificial ministry throughout time across the world. There can be very few people who haven't heard or used the term Good Samaritan. And the victim, what about him? He got the help he needed. But what about the lawyer? What can we do to help the upright who are uptight? Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Now, this was a small church, no grand building, no building at all, no minister, but they were effective in ministry. Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never met these people. Paul's in prison at this point, locked up in chains. He's in a different country, and yet he regards these people as his neighbor. Paul is a great encourager. He's a prayer warrior, and he prays for his neighbors in Colossae. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Know and understand God's will. Be filled, be controlled by God's Spirit. Well, this teacher of the law had all the knowledge in the world. 
his problem was that he wasn't filled with God's Spirit. And Paul prays for his neighbors. He prays for strength, strength that they are going to be able to endure, strength so that they are up for the fight, strength to keep them going, keep right on to the end of the road. Paul prays because there is power in prayer. Prayer can alter things. Prayer can change situations. The power of prayer can change an upright person who is uptight into one who is up for the fight. And Jesus' last words, his parting words to this upright, uptight teacher of the law are, go and do likewise. And Jesus' words to us are the same, go and do likewise. Let's pray.